Hi, I'm Kia Miakonatis, and this is NPR's Book of the Day. Today, we've got a double header from the world of sports. Sorry about the pun, but I had to. Both books offer a deeper look into scandals and plot lines that rocked the sports world, including a YA graphic memoir from Colin Kaepernick that we'll get to a little later. First up, some of you might remember the Houston Astros 2017 World Series win and the subsequent scandal that emerged after it was revealed that they cheated. Evan Drellick's new book, Winning Fixes Everything, traces the scandal back to its roots and explores the consequences still being felt today. Here he is in conversation with NPR's A. Martinez. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. We now have new clarity on the biggest cheating scandal in baseball since the steroid era. In 2017, the Houston Astros won the World Series. They also cheated. Two years after their win, an investigation by The Athletic detailed how the Astros used live video fees to steal pitching signs from opposing teams. One of the authors of the investigation was Evan Drellick. He's written a new book called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. He says it starts with the 2011 hiring of general manager Jeff Luno, who arrived in baseball with no Major League Baseball experience. Before a short stint with the St. Louis Cardinals, he'd worked at a business consulting firm. Jeff Luno was a fantasy baseball player. He built rosters and competed with his friends. You know, when he arrives in baseball and in Houston, Luno really fell in love with the idea of being a disruptor. He wanted to revolutionize baseball in the same way that Billy Bean, who was the general manager of the A's, had done so 20 years ago. And it was Billy Bean who becomes the star of Moneyball, the famous book by Michael Lewis. And so Luno arrives in Houston very much set to do things his way. Now, with sports executives like Jeff Luno, typically it seems as if they have a great relationship with the numbers, but not such a great relationship with people. Was Jeff Luno the type that kind of rubbed people the wrong way? Jeff Luno absolutely rubbed people the wrong way. And I think there's an important distinction. There's no question that analytics and advanced numbers and the arrival of big data inside of baseball produced benefits, created innovation, that there were positives attached to it. Luno, though, his management style, the way he would foster conflict in his organization, he withheld promotions, he kept salaries very low. Uh, It became a cutthroat culture, and that's not unfamiliar to those who exist outside of baseball. It was very new inside of baseball. And players, agents, stakeholders were really unhappy with how they were being treated in a variety of ways. All right, so eventually things start to turn around for the Astros. They get a lot better. And then the new commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, starts uh, putting an emphasis on more video replay to help cut down on umpires getting the calls wrong. Explain how that tech threatened the in-game communication between the pitcher and the catcher. The commissioner, Rob Manfred, you know, rightly looked around and said, well, why can't our players and managers decide to challenge a call on the field. Everybody at home 
can see a video replay if somebody got it wrong, we should go to a challenge system. But what comes along with that challenge system is a video room, a dedicated video room for every single team. And inside that video room are different feeds, including feeds directly fixed on the catcher's signs. Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball apparently forgot that this is a hyper-competitive environment, that these are players and teams that always want to try to get an edge. So players and teams start using those video rooms to look at the catcher's signs, and they do this in-game. And Major League Baseball had a long time on the books a rule prohibiting the use of electronic equipment to steal signs. So how sanctioned organization-wide was this with the Houston Astros? Was it just the players who noticed it and decided to do it? Or did it reach all the way to the top where management uh, knew this was something they could use and decided to tell everyone, hey, why don't you use it? Jeff Luno, the general manager, has denied knowledge of the cheating scheme. Uh, Major League Baseball found some evidence that that at least was not believable. Uh, There are emails from a lower-level staffer to Luno making direct references to what's called the system, and that is a reference to the cheating scheme. Luno said he did not read those emails. The culture inside of Houston was really strained. The relationship between Jeff Luno, the general manager, and manager A.J. Hinch was contentious and distrusting. The relationship between the players and the front office lacked a lot of trust. Well, Gee, do you think in that kind of environment, the manager, A.J. Hinch, is going to run to Jeff Luno, the general manager, and say, hey, Jeff, we got a problem here. We got a cheating scheme, and I think we should stop it. And what you see over time in Houston is how these different culture and decision-making approaches add up to an environment that is really not one that is prepared to handle an ethical breach. The whole focus in Houston is on winning, making money, data efficacy. It is not on everything else, and everything else comes back to bite the Astros. So in 2017, the Astros win the World Series. How much of that was due to the sign stealing in the way they did it? I think this is both an impossible and unfortunate question. The manager, AJ Hinch, has been asked this on the record. He said, We probably will never know, but we did it to ourselves. Uh, My book has an anecdote from the bench coach of the team in 2017, who's now the manager of the Boston Red Sox, where he tells people privately after the fact, we stole that bleeping World Series. Whether that's true or not, truly nobody can know. But the fact that the question exists, will continue to exist, is really among the tragedies of the whole situation. Nobody knows. In the end, general manager Jeff Luno and manager A.J. Hinch lost their jobs, but not a single player suffered any consequences from Major League Baseball. To many fans, it seems like the Astros kind of got away with it. Evan Drellick has a different view. This will follow everybody involved for the rest of their careers. It is possible that it will impact Hall of Fame voting. One of the leaders of the cheating scheme, Carlos Beltran, Uh, was newly eligible for the Hall of Fame this past winter. He did not get in. It's an interesting question of would he have at least received more support if he had not been one of the ringleaders of the cheating scheme. Players continue to be booed. And what underlies this is a lot of these players are incredibly talented. Jose Altuve, star second baseman of the Astros, is an incredibly talented player. But 
he will, as everybody on this Astros team, will be forever associated with one of the most famous cheating scandals in baseball, if not overall sports history. That's Evan Drellick. His new book is called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. Evan, thanks. Thanks, A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. In our next book, a high school senior has his eyes on college and a future in sports, but not everyone supports his vision. Though he's scouted by Major League Baseball, his real desire is to play football. So goes the plot of Colin Kaepernick's new graphic YA novel, Change the Game. It's a memoir that takes a peek into what life was like for the star athlete and activist before everyone knew his name. Here he is with NPR's Juana Summers. Before he was the face of a protest movement, before he was a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl, Colin Kaepernick was a teenager who, like many teenagers, was trying to figure out who he was and where he was going. Navigating the difficulties of of family, community, school, and major life decisions. Like whether to pursue baseball, where he had lots of offers from colleges and pro teams, or football, which, in his heart, he loved more. And what it meant that his adoptive parents were white, but the world saw him as black. So it's trying to navigate that while having a white family and being in a predominantly white community and trying to find ways to make sure that my identity and my blackness isn't stripped from me along that journey. His new graphic novel, written with Eve Ewing and illustrated by Orlando Caicedo, is about that time in his life. It's called Change the Game. At one point, young Colin Kaepernick decides to get his hair braided in cornrows. When we spoke, he said he'd been inspired by an athlete who played neither baseball nor football, the NBA superstar Allen Iverson. He was someone that I looked up to, and I saw him be so unapologetically Black and unapologetically himself. It was something that I aspired to, and I looked at that as an opportunity for me to be able to really take hold of my blackness and do it in a way that I was proud of and I was excited about. And the difficulty with that is being in white culture um, with Eurocentric beauty standards, uh, navigating what their response to that was. At 15 years old, it took me, I think, about 14 years before I grew my hair back out. Wow. So it's really to show the impact those moments can have on a young man, on a young woman, and how that carries with them through life. This is not the first book that you've published that's aimed at younger audiences. You also, along with illustrator Eric Wilkerson, published a children's book called I Color Myself Different that charts a really pivotal moment in your younger life. And this book, Change the Game, of course, is a graphic novel. What made you want to put out a graphic novel? (laughs) There were a few reasons. One of the reasons growing up, I wasn't an avid reader because I didn't have stories or I wasn't introduced to books that 
had characters that I related to. Um, it wasn't until I read um, We'll Never Forget You, Roberto Clemente, that I saw another black person as the lead of a book. It was game-changing for me. How so? Um, I, I knew there were other books out there and other opportunities to be able to find stories, to find narratives that I identified with. So what we're looking to do now is, for younger audiences, give them hopefully characters and stories that they relate to, but also give them pieces of knowledge and situations and try to help them navigate those in ways that I didn't have access to growing up and based upon conversations that I've had, a lot of other people didn't as well. When you're trying to correct a problem, you should start by looking in the mirror. That note my father left for me has stuck with me ever since. I was so mad at him in that moment. I learned a lesson that day I haven't been able to shake since. There are a lot of things around me I can't control, but I can control how I react to them, how I maneuver in a situation. That is an excerpt from the audiobook of Colin Kaepernick's Change the Game. You know, this book, um, towards the end, it shows you in one of the panels on the phone in an office receiving a phone call from a coach at the University of Nevada, Reno, offering you a football scholarship for the first time. And that's sort of where the book leaves your story. It doesn't delve into your pro football career. It doesn't delve into your college years. So I'm curious, from a storytelling standpoint, why stop there before you head off to the university, before we see you in the NFL? So we, we end the story there, one, to make sure that uh, we don't have a never-ending book because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of story to tell. Uh, but the other part of it is we wanted to create a defining moment that younger kids and high school kids could identify with, which is that transition and decision to, of what to do after high school. And for me at that point in time, baseball was the obvious decision for everyone around me. I had multiple offers. I had the MLB come and sit down in my living room and tell me they wanted to draft me. There was an obvious career path there. And I had not a single offer for football at this point, but it was what I loved and what I wanted to do in spite of everyone else telling me I should go a different direction. One of the last pages of this book ends with this image of you where you're surrounded by the bright lights. You've got that number seven red jersey on the gold pants. You're taking a knee and the image of you on a knee like that is one that is familiar for many people, even those who do not watch football. You have not played in the NFL since January 2017, six years ago at this point. I want to ask you, do you believe that the NFL has changed for the better since you were last on that field? <laughs> uh, I haven't seen any substantial change. I think there is a, a lot of work to do on that front. Um, obviously, not playing and being out of the NFL for six years is an indictment on where they are currently at. So I wouldn't put them at the forefront of... Uh, goodwill and best of intentions in how they operate. You know, I have to wonder, given all the time that's passed, given everything that has happened since you first took a knee during an NFL game, I wonder, removed from all of that, do you spend much time thinking about what your career might have looked like if you were still playing in the league? Or do you think that 
losing that career and some of those opportunities was key to doing something greater, to creating some lasting change. No, I think there's a this idea out there that those are mutually exclusive. And I don't subscribe to that. So I think people are multifaceted and multi-talented. And, and ultimately, that's something that we want to make sure that message is being sent as well. We have the opportunity to move forward and not be pigeonholed into singular elements of ourselves. But do you, though, do you think back about what your career could have looked like, or or is this something that you don't consider quite as much at this point? My focus is always on what I can do moving forward. What can I do to change my my present and my future? Um, So training at 4.30 to be able to have the opportunity to make a comeback, absolutely. That's something I do five days a week still. But as far as looking back, that's not something I do. I'm looking forward to where can I have an impact? What are my passions? And a great example of that is Change the Game. And this book being able to come out, us being able to share this message with the youth, and it becomes a great opportunity for us to be able to create a, a future that looks different. Former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, his graphic novel, Change the Game, is out now. Colin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Kia Miakanatis. This podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Milton Guevara, Rina Advani, Allison Molenkamp, Ed McNulty, Barry Gordimer, Ashley Listenby, Melissa Gray, Ziad Bush, Phil Harrell, Jason Fuller, and Patrick Jaron Watanadan. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. On NPR's Throughline, we cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.